Hi everyone, welcome to the AI of Mankind show, where I share anything interesting about mankind. I'm your host for this season. My name is Andrew Liu. I've worked across four continents and 12 international cities. Also, I've worked in tech startups across a range of roles from selling products, making customer happy, figuring out fundraising, making finance tick, building teams, and developing sticky products. Apart from building startups, I've also worked in Fortune 500 companies as a chief data scientist or technologist or people leader. You can call me jack of all trades or master of learning. I hope to make this podcast show a great learning experience for us. In each season, there is a series of interesting things where I invite guests to share their views about their life and interests. Now let the show begin. In the previous episode, Gerard talked about his backstory. Along the way, he mentioned about his journey to picking up statistics, taking up a job with IBM SPSS as a trainer to eventually becoming the chief data scientist for a direct sourcing company. This episode continued the part 2 conversation with Gerard and Gerard shares his digital and data transformation case on helping the government with volunteers acquisition strategy for non-profit organizations. He also shares a project that makes money at the expense of others' privacy. At the same time, he shared a successful data transformation story of how a digital marketing campaign is done in a country of unrest. Let's continue. So, so then another thing is that I did actually manage to, tra- to, to present, not to Prime Minister Lee, but I present to a Lee family member also, no? somewhere down the road. <laughs> so I did actually present a statistical model to Lee family person and then that one was actually helping the company to actually find out why volunteers don't want to actually volunteer at all how do we attract more volunteers interesting yeah yeah tell me what was the thought process then like what kind of schools of thought about people volunteering or not volunteering what are the schools of thought that that are reasons you have yeah so basically what happened was that the company don't know the face of the volunteer it is always happening like that. So they don't know the face of the, they don't know who they are and all those things. So then I have to actually profile them and understand who volunteer and who don't volunteer. If they don't know who they are, how do you collect the data? Data scientists, without data, there's no science. So so, so they understand who their volunteers are. They just don't know who they are in terms of the profile. They have some characteristics. Yeah, so so then I actually go and profile what makes a volunteer, what makes a non-volunteer. So once we know what makes a volunteer, what makes a non-volunteer, I found out with some decision tree and I was actually going into even to find out what kind of activities the volunteers are actually taking up. What kind of activities the non-volunteer used to take up. So these are non-volunteers now, but they used to be volunteers, right? So they used to actually take up some activities before. Yes. And then I found out that these non-volunteers tends to be those that are workers, like maybe say 40 to 50 or 30 to 40 range. That kind. And then they take up things that is simple to do. That is maybe say on weekend, a few hours. Those that is younger ones, that is actually to 20 plus and then 18 to 25, they are actually taking up more time consuming. Those that need more time volunteering work, like maybe say the entire morning, or the entire weekend and that kind of thing. Not one or two hours. 
So then I point this out to that volunteering company, that yes. volunteer non-profit organization. I was telling yes. them, yes. I said that, so this is actually something that you need to take note of for your volunteers and non-volunteer. Then you, since you know who they are, you know what they do, you want to know where to hit them. So then I asked them to brainstorm as well. That is, so where do you think you can actually find someone that is young and then do all these things? Someone that is actually to be white collar, where to find them for simple task on Saturday, where they can actually just one hour, maybe say, take some kids out for a walk from those lower income family. Why not? So then you must know who they are first. Then you know what they do. Then you know where to find them. Then that might actually increase the chance of hitting a volunteer. Talking about volunteering, because I remember I was having this chat with a few previous podcast episodes. One of the things that one of the data scientists was saying that because he does international benchmarking work, yeah. and he was saying that actually countries that has better welfare state that let's say promote more allowances or called universal benefit income or unemployment benefit, there is a higher degree of people or population. To do volunteering because they don't have to do a very hard trade-off between work and volunteer. That's right. Uh, and so, uh, is, is, is there some kind of truth on that based on your current research for that project? Is there something that you guys discussed about that before? No, because we don't have a direct data to actually point to that information. That one, if you actually want to come to that conclusion, you really need to actually have very solid base database to actually come up and say, oh, this is the, how the entire country is actually behaving or things like that. Because that is actually a survey form collected data. And yes, that database is hard copy. Wow. <laughs> but yes, not all databases are actually soft copy. So, so you haven't before. <laughs> how did you deal with hard copy data at that time? Oh, wait, how many years was that? That was 10 uh, years Two ago, years. Two, uh, how many years back data? That was around... I can't remember, maybe say seven years ago, seven years ago. or ten, 10 years ago-ish is hard copy data, yes. Of course, then we have data clock to actually enter the data into the into uh, okay. spreadsheet. Yes. Then we start to actually do the analysis and things like that. Yes, uh, I've seen the database in, in, form, in, right? <laughs> in paper form. It's no, actually I, horrifying. <laughs> um, I, I had the same experience that was about I think 2003, almost 19 years ago, yeah. when I was a junior data analyst for a big consulting brand. And I was like, oh man, we're going to work for this, I think some chocolate company. And then we went to the to the office. Yeah. We were so excited. Ah, just bring my laptop. I think it'll be easy. Then the guy, the HR, bum, 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 bring one stack. Oh, this is all the payroll data. I was like, wait, this is in paper form. Yes, you got to first enter the data. Oh, like, what's the, what's the pay benchmark? And I was like, oh my God, this is part of the consulting work. Literally, we spent a few days just enter it. Uh-huh. There's no uh-huh. OCR, no take picture and transport the data. Funny things actually that, that do happen in our line of work as data scientists. I can actually jump a bit on to talk about some of the work that I had, the unique ones, which is actually URL and app browsing prediction model. So... The one that you are on air browsing prediction model is the last phase of the entire telco work. I hate that model. <laughs> I, re- I regret building that model because you are on air browsing prediction model. It runs for six years, actually earning money 24-7. I should be happy, right? But no, because it is actually looking at everyone's privacy 
even HTTPS, they can actually take the information and then go and find out. So where you actually serve, what kind of website you serve. And then from there to actually find out the URL and app that you have to use and then find out what TV channels to sell to you. And this is across all the browsing tools like, like yes. Google Chrome, like mobile uh, or yes. Wi-Fi, they can catch you. Yes. So I don't like the model. I was asking my client, is it, is it actually still functioning? He said, yeah, it is still functioning. But then it's, we're trading off our privacy for money. Yes. And that is the last phase. The first few phase was actually trying to find out whether the person is active user, whether the person actually increased in usage, what can we sell him next? Can we actually sell him more services, which is mobile to Wi-Fi or Wi-Fi to TV? If so, then what kind of TV channels can we sell to him? Can we refine the TV channels based on the URL and app that the person actually served? Oh, yeah. So it goes all the way there. That's the phase. And suddenly something actually happens. So this is actually, we were doing the cleanup of the URL. And of course, we have machine to actually help on that. Let's say that you're actually serving YouTube. I serve YouTube. Yes. And then we should actually be classifying YouTube as entertainment. But because you serve a lot of golf, I serve a lot of games, video games. So I have a lot of banners actually appearing in, in that YouTube itself. And then you have a lot of sports banner appearing in the YouTube. When we actually crawl information, the entire paragraph of words actually is yours is golf, mine is games. But we want everything to be classified as entertainment. So then I was telling my friend, who is actually a tech scientist, that you should actually look at how we can identify the number of occurrence of words that's appearing in the entire 300 over words and try to classify it accordingly. I was telling, I was giving him some sort of instruction. And then once he actually devised his own method, he gave me the raw data, which actually had that, whether it's entertainment, whether it's sports, whether it's law-related or business-related, then we start doing our work, which is actually using K-means to, to actually classify the, the customer. But then that work is a K-means within the K-means eventually. I, I don't like the K-means within K-means because then the error could be squared, right? Yes. The error is because the model video model actually caused a risky error there. But thankfully, the model still runs for six years. And then why we do a K-means within K-means is because the time everyone is so happy about Pokemon Go and social media especially Pokemon Go. It appears across all the K-means. Social media appear across all the, K- all the K-means. Then we can't do anything. We just say, okay, let's do it this way. We redesigned the K-means. We redesigned the blueprint. We actually had a bigger cluster of K-means. And then from there, we use a K-means on the bigger cluster. So something like that. Then once we did that, the model actually comes up with interesting combinations of URL and app that the person used. But something happened in the project that was actually quite, quite, quite interesting. Now, there are some strays URL that is actually not classified properly. Yes. And then we have things like location of the person, the airport location that the person served. So I have to actually go and classify manually how to actually, this is actually some strays URL. So I have to actually go and classify the location of those. Then I have to classify medical information. 
So one day, imagine one day, one day we are actually airport specialists. Second day, we are actually doctors sitting in the room trying to understand what the URL is actually talking about. Is it actually about knee pain? Is it about heart pain? Or <laughs> then... So talking about that URL thing and the IP address, if the yeah. end user were to use a VPN that constantly randomize a IP address or yeah. constantly change the browser, the yeah. model will break all you mean you guys actually account for all these factors as well? We can't control the VPN part. But then so long as the information is there, we will use the information to actually do the the classification and all those. Okay. So then something really interesting happened. That is, we were actually asked to actually classify porn websites. <laughs> what was the classification for that, by the way? So, so he said that uh, porn website is something which the client wants to take out. So... Jared, these are actually some of the strays URL which we cannot classify whether it's porn or not porn. So can you click on the link and then just go inside and see whether it's porn. If it's porn, you put porn. If it's not porn, you put no porn. Manual label. Yeah, it's some stray. It's just some stray website. So it's just imagine just one spreadsheet of links. But I was saying, but I was telling my research director, look, it's Office. How do you want me to actually? just serve this website in office open oh, up yeah. and then, yeah it's office so she said just book a room go inside the room and then just enjoy yourself <laughs> no, no what if someone walk in the room and then yes yeah, someone actually walk in the room and they're ladies <laughs> yeah, right, wow. so then we work from home and to make sure the classification is done properly. <laughs> it was very funny, but it was actually done. And then the client's first reaction when he actually sees all the pawn URL being captured properly, he say, let's start a pawn services. We earn like mad. <laughs> you have all the things there already. <laughs> but of course, they actually cancel everything out. So I that joking, yeah. right? He's just joking. He's just, as a telco company, they want to ban all these websites so that people will not actually go into this website and then yes that's why some international of the... american company it's probably some country that's very conservative right because yeah. imagine in the u.s and japan it depends on these kind of industry to yeah. prosper your telco yeah. business so then what happened was that we finished the work it was very funny so we eventually finished finished the work and then the you're on air browsing prediction model we were testing it as well. And then we were very worried about one thing because this is actually mobile versus Wi-Fi. Now, mobile is actually very personalized. So it's something which you will not actually deviate so much in terms of the profile. But Wi-Fi is something that we are worried about because it can happen in such a way that people come to a house and then you suddenly need to actually, that profile will suddenly change, right? Because the person come to a house and serve using a wife. So we go by the law of large number. Thankfully, because the person, the owner of the Wi-Fi is staying there for very long, a few strains of Wi-Fi usage won't actually change the characteristic that much. Right. So we are we're somewhat right about that until we test it and we realized that Malay 80 years old was used to serve video, right? Video call. And then suddenly she started to serve parents and parenting and e-commerce. Then we were very surprised. Then yeah. we thought the model is wrong. Then 
my research director said, don't panic. We actually see what happened in the third scoring. So on the third scoring itself, we realized that it become video call again. Then I was telling my client, I don't have solid data to prove this to you. But looking at the calendar, if you actually notice the behavior of the Wi-Fi, why this Malay 80 years old is doing like that? is Hari Raya. Ah. So, Hari Raya, and then her kids should actually have came back to her home. And then they have younger kids of their own and they are fasting. And so they are serving parenting website. And then they are using e-commerce to buy cookies online. Then it actually goes back after Hari Raya, go back to, uh, go back to video call. Then my client was actually quite impressed and say, wow, Jared, your machine learning model actually takes care of festive season. Okay, <laughs> okay about this, yes. How do you pick out this, I call it out of the context or the nuances to be able to read this thing and train the model? This is what I call business acumen. Like how do you develop that? Or do you think that it was through your career or you learn it somewhere? It's actually through my career. Somewhere down the road, in IBM SPSS consistently talk with the business people then it trains me to be a front-end data scientist so which is back to what I was saying that then somewhere down the road you have to actually decide whether you want to actually become a front-end data scientist and your challenge of course is this that is can you set up the department from scratch that is ground zero no data, no software, no hardware. And you have to test your hardware, test your software, which one you want to use, what is actually the PL profit and loss that you're expecting. Of course, the cost will come first because you have to set up the department. Then what kind of people you want to hire? What is the procedures of data process that you are looking at? Extraction, cleaning. You have to set up the cleaning process and all those things as well. Then all this after you set up, then you will want to prove your models and all those things or what kind of analysis they want to use. This yeah. is actually another, what I can say, phase of a data scientist. This is after a senior data scientist or maybe a data science manager onwards, whereby he lo- he don't look at just modeling and coding anymore. He also will look at the entire package, which is actually the PNL of the data science department, profit and loss. Yes. Then after you set up the department, then hopefully you will not face this. But if you face this, then congratulations. This is actually another phase for you, which is to deploy a model in a very sudden economical event, right? So I faced that four times already. So I'm what sure some of the economic event means. Yeah, I, I'm, sure some of the, I'm sure some of the listeners faced it as well. So the first one is actually Thai protests. Country unrest. I have deployed many models, but then deploying a model that earn money during a country unrest is something that is first time for me. <laughs> oh, uh, share with us the general idea of what actually happened, or why was it so interesting, or what was so so stressful. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so you we were talking about you're trying to give advice to a data scientists or data analysts or somebody who wants to set up a team to become a manager, yeah. and you are talking about one of the trigger events. Thai protests or country unrest. So I was like, I can tell us a bit about that story of that. Uh, how did it happen? Or what happened? And what was going on? What do you have to do? And how do you solve the problem? So Thai protest period was actually a unique situation. Something which we didn't expect. I was actually telling the vice here more. I said, we actually just push the big sales event to a later date. Because 
we aren't even sure that our delivery van is able to actually send the products to the car. Yeah. Because this tire protest, everyone is blocking the street. They take over the airport and whatever. So then my vice CMO was saying, Jared, it's time to test your model. <laughs> yeah, I know. I had that same expression as you. The face was like, the mouth opened wide. Eyes roll, right? What's going sure? on? Oh, my God. Yeah, are you sure? So then we we did it anyway. And we did a few tests before the actual launch. Thankfully, we did it before the actual launch. And we, yes, I always actually test my model before we launch it. So we had predictions say that these people will buy fashion product. And then we send first group A, we send fashion. Group B, we send garbage. So then we just, just want to curious, make sure. What, what yeah, is garbage in this context? Random, random product. So okay. we call it garbage. So we say random product. We don't send any fashion. We send, because all these are predictive fashion. So we go extreme because all these people should buy. And we are saying that if we send them non-fashion product, they shouldn't buy it. So the non-fashion group, the non-fashion information group B, they still buy, then the model is a failure. So the open rate is the same. The click-through rate is the same, but the conversion for the one that is actually been sent fashion is twice the amount of those that are sent garbage. Because it's very interesting because normally the like the garbage here is like the control factor, right? And then yes. you have this like changing factor or boosting factor. So in this case, yeah. you, you almost flip it around, right? My usual way is A group is we is fashion buyer. B group is really we send non-fashion buyer. But my the time he has a very funny, she has a very funny thinking. She say, we just choose all fashion people and we will send group A fashion, group B non-fashion product. She wants to prove a point that my model will fail because these are actually buyers anyway. You send them anything they will buy, right? But then ah. that campaign actually proved her wrong because when I say that she buy, the person buy fashion product, they buy fashion product. It's twice the amount than those that's actually sending non-fashion product. And what was the response from the stakeholders when they saw the result of that first trial? <laughs> Let's actually get Jared to actually send more. And then I send more. And then the Thai themselves, the company, they sent 8.5 million emails and back 40k Thai baht. During the protest period, I sent 9,000 emails. They sent 8.5 million. Eh? They earned 40k Thai baht in a month. Eh? I sent 9,000. I earned back 100k in a week. In two weeks, sorry, in a week, two weeks. <laughs> and, and, and before that, uh, what was their business as usual experiment? That means we, they send, they just massive send emails every day, three times a, a day, every week, consist, consistently. Every day we send three times a day. So that's why it chalk up to eight point five million, and then it chalk up to forty million. It's just actually just forty, so not forty million, forty k Thai baht only. I send. 9,000, I earn back 100K in two weeks. So they take one month, I take two weeks. So they say, Jared, good, continue send. So, you know, the 9,000, <laughs> the 9,000 one is actually the Thai protest, start of Thai protest period. No? And then we actually send out 9,000, we earn 100K itself. It's like, whoa, okay. So my vice CMO say, is it that Thai protest means we'll have bigger sales? <laughs> Are you selling shirts with like this brand called Thai Protest or not? <laughs> <laughs> no, we're selling a different thing. Fashion, uh, food, whatever. So 
Then we sent to the entire month. I was sending out around, I think, 300K emails. And then we earned back 400K Thai baht in the entire month, which is 400K, which is actually really literally a lot of times more than their 40K Thai baht. And then they sent 8.5 million. No, I only sent like, what, 300 to 400K emails. And then I earned back like 400K Thai baht. <laughs> was it also because the email that you got was like what we call MPQ, Market Qualified Leads? Whereas for them, they just buy a bunch and then pray and spray. I don't... Yes, that's actually the case as well. But then I was also sharing with them that what you are sending, even you're sending to your qualified customers, yes. they are actually sending information that your qualified customer don't like. So I was sending them information that they like to see. And then because of that, then the entice there is there. It's the entice, the magnetic pool of buying is there. And then I was actually sharing as well that the reason why is it like that is because also that then they will not actually throw you to junk box. They respond with a purchase as well. So then this actually shows that really customers really want to actually see a customized view of what they want to buy. If you go to certain supermarket, you actually look at the receipt print behind detergent mop. Oh yes, I see ads. (laughs) Yeah, ads. But then I'm not enticed by detergent mop. I see continuously over the years, detergent mop. It's the same thing in dishwasher. It doesn't entice me at all. I'm looking for snacks or something nice, but then it's not customized to me. Why should I actually be enticed with something that I don't like to do? Detergent mop, dishwasher, I do housework. I don't like to see that. (laughs) There's two schools of thought in marketing, right? One is do branding. Just keep, just throw at the user. In this case, Behind the ads, this, like you say, washing machine, washing powder. Whereas you feel this is the second score, so just be target, just shoot where the bullseye is, right? Yeah. And what do you see, like, in, in the world of marketing, any clients that they are moving towards the second thought of the bullseye because the branding, the impression, just high frequency would work. I don't know. What are your thoughts on this? Yeah. yeah. So... You see, this is actually a very interesting discussion I had with the senior stakeholders inside the company. So they say that, look, Jared, I know my competitors are targeting their clients very well. They are also targeting my client. And not only that, my clients are buying from them before they actually know what they want to buy. And then that actually means that they have no money for my product. (laughs) So they were saying, Jared, is there a way for us to actually know what the customer might buy before they buy? Or can we actually target them a certain product? And they were also consistently conscious about this. That is, we spend a lot of money on discount for marketing, right? We just actually spray and pray by sending discount to everyone and think that they will buy. And I was actually telling them, say that the strategy needs to be tweaked a bit. Those that are actually your premium customers, they'll buy anyway. Discount or not, right? Why don't you actually get this discount and then save it and use it on those customers that are actually almost leaving the company? Mm-hmm. Or use it on customers that are actually about to, uh, already left the company and get them to come back. So then you see, then your discount is actually saved and utilized in a more efficient manner rather than actually just spray and pray to everyone. So in order to do that, 
you need to actually know who are you targeting, what are they buying, things like that. Then the, they are actually very attuned to this one because they were saying that up to now, their strategy is that the person who spend more means they are likely to buy more, right? Mm. But I've given them a school of thought that is, yes, they can spend $1,000, mm. but then what happened if he spent $1,000 today versus someone who spent $1,000 a year ago? Which one will you treasure as a customer? The answer is obvious. Mm. I'll, tre- I'll treasure those that can give me money now better than one year ago. So mm. then you see, then the majority thinking that, oh, a high spender means that he's a treasure customer is no longer there, right? Mm-hmm. You must actually see whether he can give you money fast enough so that it can become, it can solve some cash flow issue in the company yes. and also can actually get them away from your competitors as well. And you are you, in this digitalization war that is consi- consi- consistently going on, it's a war that is going on online. Mm-hmm. That is... We will never know whether the customer are being targeted by your competitors or so. Yes, and true. then they could be using it across the street in their retail store and say, calling up your customer and say that we'd like to buy something from us. <laughs> <laughs> so this is the situation. And this is the country unrest story that I had that I bring. And to actually talk about more about the advancement of the data scientists, after you actually had done the country unrest, the next one you should look at is whether you can do a product innovation. Mm. Yeah, this is very difficult because you, if you, because normally as a data scientist, we are trained from bottom up. We are looking at how do we extract data, how do we transform data, how do we yes. data and all those. But suddenly, as a person who is actually doing product innovation, we have to change our school of thought to become from top down, which is from what the market needs. Mm. to what data we have, yes. what methods we should carry out and what data we have. So then once you reach this stage of product innovation, then you're somewhat ready to actually present to investors, which is to dive inside a shark tank. <laughs> so if you can dive inside a shark tank and still remain alive and and still can smile, then yeah, you're somewhat there. If you can... I, I went to present to laymen, merchants, vegetable sellers who are trying to sell pickles online. <laughs> and yeah, vegetable sellers. Even investors who actually just want to understand what data science innovation are you going to sell. So if you actually start to talk to them about, oh, it's adjusted R square, oh, you're using Python, oh, you're using FPG Boost, that's it. They'll just say, I'm sorry, it's very interesting, but then I don't want to invest. <laughs> it's also that story. Hi, guys. Thanks for listening to this podcast. In part three episode with Gerard, Gerard and Andrew exchange views on the difference between a data analyst and a data scientist. The difference between a technical data scientist and a client-facing data scientist. Andrew shares a trend that companies are seeking data strategies to build data roadmap and data blueprint for companies and Gerard mentioned the need that companies do not just stop at that stage but follow up closely to implement the roadmap and blueprint to avoid a translation gap. Both agreed that companies need to be patient with implementing data transformation as Gerard shared a funny story about Twitter wanting a machine learning model in the next second. If this is the first time you are tuning in, remember to subscribe to this show. 
If you have subscribed to this show and love this episode, please share it with your friends, family, and acquaintances. See you later and see you soon. Thank、you